What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 236. It's titled, How Investors Cope with Radical Uncertainty. My friend Caleb hosts the Bankster podcast and runs the site, The Centralverse, at thecentralverse.org. It's a podcast and site all about central banking. They're great resources. And I was on Caleb's site looking at recommended reading on central banking. And one of the books was The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy. It's a book by Mervyn King. He's a British economist and served as the governor of the Bank of England from 2003 through 2013. He was there during the financial crisis, working with Ben Bernanke and the other players trying to keep the financial system from collapsing. But this isn't a book where he pats himself on the back on what a great job he did. This is a book about coping with uncertainty. And one way we we don't cope is through optimization. We talked about sort of some of the dangers of optimizing or the difficulties of doing so back in episode 229 with our discussion on asset allocation and model portfolio theory. Here's what King says. The language of optimization is seductive. But humans do not optimize. They cope. They respond and adapt to new surroundings, new stimuli, and new challenges. What are we coping with as humans? With radical uncertainty, which he describes as uncertainty so profound that it is impossible to represent the future in terms of noble and exhaustive list of outcomes to which we can attach probabilities. We just don't know what's going to happen. And, and he hearkens that he refers to Frank Knight, an American economist who back in 1921 talked about what's the difference between risk and uncertainty. And risk are things, they're, they're defined events, like your house catching on fire, where you know it may or may not happen, but at least it's a future outcome that you can assign a probability to. And underwrite some type of contract to hedge or protect against it. You could buy insurance. That's what insurance is. It's a way to manage risk, but risk that can be defined by probability. King writes, uncertainty, by contrast, concerns events where it's not possible to define or even imagine all possible future outcomes and to which probabilities cannot therefore be assigned. Such eventualities are uninsurable and many Unpredictable events take this form. One of those is managing money, navigating the investment markets. King says investors make judgments, perhaps based on a coping strategy and with the benefit of hindsight. These are sometimes described as mistakes, but beliefs change. And who is to know which beliefs are correct? The valuations in financial markets are for the moment. They change quickly and sometimes violently. 
reflecting uncertain knowledge of the future. Investors are simply people trying to cope with an unknowable future and behave as we all do in such situations, sometimes cautiously, sometimes erratically, but always in a fog of uncertainty. As an investment advisor, I had to deal with that. I mean, it's one thing as an individual to be manage your money like I do now. I don't manage money for others. And you deal with the uncertainty, and we're going to talk about how to do that in this episode. But at a, as a money manager, you're making decisions in public for pay, and there's the expectation from clients that you actually can assign probabilities to events, or you have some foresight about what is going to happen. But managers don't. But their clients think they do. David Tuckett, he directs the Center for the Study Decision-Making Uncertainty at the University College of London. He spent time researching money managers and how they go about making decisions. And he has some really interesting insights. There was a fascinating talk. This is from a talk he gave, and I'll obviously link to it in the show notes. He said, beforehand, there, there are no correct decisions. No probability distribution of the outcome data can, sensibly, can be sensibly constructed and outcomes are radically uncertain. What to do is fundamentally uncertain, a matter of judgment and waiting. However, in this situation, financial agents are nonetheless required to take decisions and also to, to maintain them often for lengthy time periods and to do this in public while strongly incentivized to believe they could earn exceptional returns by doing so. That's their charge, to make decisions in public. And they got to believe in themselves. They're charging 1% or even 2%. They have to believe that they can deliver excess returns above and beyond what an investor could do managing their assets passively. Tucker continues, To be realistic, therefore... The focus of analysis must change away from examining how agents make optimal decisions towards understanding how it is agents come to feel comfortable enough to act at all. How do you get the courage to make an investment decision in a period or a world that is radically unpredictable? David Tuckett says, when investors buy, sell, or hold all classes of financial assets, what they're doing is constructing narratives about their future relationships with an imagined idea. It's a narrative about a given option that makes that option compelling. We tell stories. We tell stock, stock stories. Here's what's going to happen to Apple or to Amazon or to this asset class. We do this in our, in our daily lives. He talks about how we tell stories about plans to go on a holiday to buy a house. LaPrell and I have told ourselves a story about a house that we're buying in Phoenix, a story about how it's going to work out. We tell these stories when we enter some type of relationship or decide to have children. Now, these stories, he mentions, that they, they can evoke good and bad feelings. He says, imagining I love him, he likes me, I hate her, she makes me anxious, and so on. We have doubts, these volatile behaviors that we, we can sometimes have. And the same thing happens with financial assets. 
The volatile behavior of financial assets, he writes, creates emotional conflicts. There are reasons to love or hate them, or even sometimes to be bored by them. Think about that. I, I, as, a, as a money manager, and you probably have it too, there's, there's investment, master limited partnerships. I've talked about that numerous times over the past four years on the podcast. There's times I just hate master limited partnerships. They're always disappointing me. These are energy infrastructure investments. And as a money manager, when an asset class disappointed me, I was really upset at it. And I would beat myself up. Why didn't I know that was going to happen? How did I not foresee that? At other times, I got it right. And I told myself a story. Boy, David, you were smart. You made a good decision there. But we tell ourselves these stories about what we think is going to happen. And, and that's important. A week or so ago, I got an email from a member, a listener, and a plus member. And she said, and she entered, well, she shared with me Ray Dalio, who is the founder of the, the hedge fund Bridgewater and Associates. He also wrote the book Principles, great book. He sent out via LinkedIn a few weeks ago when, when markets were particularly volatile. Just his thoughts. Well, he titled it, To Help Put Recent Economic and Market Moves in Perspective. Ray Dalio has a story in terms of how he foresees the market. He sees it as an economic machine with different debt cycles, a long-term debt cycle, a short-term debt cycle, and you have all these components and levers. It's a machine. I mean, that's his story for how he navigates markets. And he, he's like any other successful investor. He's using rules of thumb. That's his heuristic. And they're using stories. He writes in principles, whatever success I've had in life has more to do with my knowing how to deal with my not knowing than anything I know. He's dealing with radical uncertainty, with heuristics and stories. He also says, or wrote in a book, he who lives by the crystal ball is destined to eat ground glass. He realized that, well, he continued, I have eaten enough glass to realize that what was most important was, wasn't knowing the future. It was knowing how to react appropriately to the information available at each point in time. What do we do in current conditions? That, that's something we face every single day as investors. Now, professional investors face it every single day. I guess as individuals, hopefully we don't. So this member that wrote me, she, she says, the only way to get past my terror of air and to do even a little work is to listen to you. And I like Ray Dalio as well. But if I read too widely, I get overwhelmed. She's using filters so that she doesn't get overwhelmed and can make better decisions using rules of thumbs and using appropriate narratives. She really likes the, this narrative that Ray Dalio uses regarding an economic machine that helps her make better investment decisions. Now, here are a couple of warnings from David Tuckett about this story 
telling these narratives because there's risk to it. It's, we all do it. We do it naturally. So we, if we're going to do it, we better do it in a way that doesn't cost us, doesn't lead to big mistakes. He writes, the prices of financial assets cannot be set by fundamentals, which are unknown and in future unknowable. They are set by stories about fundamentals, specifically the stories which market consensus at any one moment judges true. The consensus of market participants. Ultimately, there is a narrative driving that market. Up until late September of 2018, one of the stories was the U.S. economy was going to be disconnected from the rest of the world, that even though the economic growth was slowing globally, that the U.S. would be okay. And then, and, and, and as a result, the Fed was going to continue to raise interest rates. Interest rates started rising. They got to levels they hadn't been in several years. And then come kind of late November, mid to late November, and especially into December, the story shifted and the market fell quite sharply in December. Tucker continues, moreover, because which stories are most popular and judged true can change very much quickly than fundamentals, asset valuations can change very rapidly indeed. It's a changing story. The changing narrative can lead to, to a lot of the volatility. Now, here's the risk, because sometimes the story can be very much wrong. And investors collectively, that consensus can be a big mistake. An example is the internet bubble or cryptocurrencies. And the word that Tucker uses to describe that, he, he calls these things fantastic objects with P-H-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-C, fantastic objects. He describes those as highly exciting ideas, people or things that fulfill our deepest desires and promise compelling gains. These idealized objects are so attractive in our minds that they repel any doubt. And, and that's what happened. These stories can take, think of, I don't know if you were investing in their internet bubble, everybody had their favorite internet stock or those that sold much of their assets and put it in cryptocurrencies. They believed in this fantastic object and it dispelled doubt. It repelled doubt. They couldn't have doubt. The way that Tucker points it, they, they get into a divided state of mind, which they find less stressful. They just repel any, anything. This is going to work. They become so confident in it that they risk huge amounts of their net worth. We can't do that. We need more of an, an integrated state of mind where we're willing to, to, to accept that things might not work out as planned. And it, it's an ongoing battle. I admit it. I, over when the market was falling significantly in late December 2018, I do a monthly investment conditions report for Money for the Restless Plus where we look at valuations, look at economic trends, we look at the momentum, the, what I call market internals. Just, and the market internals were just terrible. They were in red, deep in red territory. And the decision was, should... In my personal portfolio, should I cut back stocks even more? And should we cut them back in the model portfolios? 
and my gut wanted to do it. The fear made me want to do it. I want to stop the pain. I don't like those losses. I wanted to get into the divided state of mind. I wanted to, I wanted to, I didn't like the asset classes that were losing money. I had a bad relationship with them. But instead, I went back to the data. What do the economic data say in terms of the likelihood of a U.S. recession right now? Still low. And so looking at the data, I could tell a more reasonable story to not panic and to maintain my current asset allocation. That's what we need to do. We, we look at data and we apply filters. But you, know, you might have a preferred data source. You might have a preferred investment mentor. You might like the frame that Ray Dalio uses in terms of the economic machine. But we do that so that we can tell reasonable stories so that we don't get caught up in these fantastic objects and make big mistakes. We're always going to make mistakes. That's just part of investing because we can't predict what's going to happen. But we can tell ourselves reasonable stories and build out portfolios that hopefully over time will do well and we won't overly concentrate in one asset class because we get caught up in some mania like cryptocurrencies or, or the FANG stocks, which obviously have also taken a hit recently. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash david. 
all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash David now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. Another way that we can cope as investors is not beat ourselves up over mistakes. Here's an example. So recently, we had a discussion on the forums of Money for the Rest of the Plus. I remember back, I don't know if it was in October or November, sold some of the Vanguard long-term bond index fund and bought the Vanguard short-term treasury index fund. So had some exposure to very long-term bonds. And as the market sold off, the Vanguard long-term bond index fund did very, very well relative to the short-term bond fund because the long durations and the trades fell, value of bonds went up. And he was feeling bad. He was kind of, I don't know if he was beating himself up, but he just felt he didn't like that feeling when an asset class you sell does well. Annie Duke, former professional poker player, writes in her book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, what makes a great decision is not that it has a great outcome. A great decision is the result of a good process. Decisions are bets on the future, and they aren't right or wrong based on whether they turn out well on any particular iteration. This decision to sell long-term bonds and put the money in short-term bonds, I think was a well-thought-out decision. In November, November 8th, 2018, the 30-year Treasury bond yield hit the highest it's been in, in several years of 3.43%. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve has been raising short-term interest rates. And so the spread between 30-year Treasury bonds and 30-day Treasury bonds was 1.2%. Now, I owned 30-year Treasury bonds in early 2011 when they were yielding 4.5%, and the yield on 30-day Treasuries was zero. So effectively, the spread was 4.5%. So it was a 4.5% year spread. Now we're, it was at 1.2% in November. He put some money in short-term bonds because he was getting compensated for it. You weren't getting that much additional compensation for longer-term bonds. And longer-term bonds were still kind of at historically low levels. Had they been at 4.5%, that's a different story. I think it was a sound decision process. Now, 30-year treasury bonds have fallen, and that spread between cash or 90-day or 30, 30 T-bills and 30-year treasury bonds is 0.6%. That's a pretty narrow spread. And, and you're just not compensated for that risk. Now, we talked about why one might want to hold 30-year treasury bonds as a long-term holding back a number of episodes ago where we talked about balanced asset allocation, in which case you could hold 30-year treasury bonds because they're very, very volatile. And so you have a volatile fixed income allocation and you have a volatile stock market allocation. And so your volatility isn't all driven by stocks. It's also driven by bonds. But is now the time to do that when the spread, you can earn almost as much just investing in cash or, or essentially 30-day T-bills? I don't think so. But it, it felt bad, and it, it's normal to feel bad, but that we have to tell ourselves reasonable stories, good stories, good narratives that we have 
a good decision-making process. In Mervyn King's book, as he talks about these stories, he mentions that we talk about, we have stories where we, we have our perception of, of our lifetime income or our wealth and, and how these stories can impact the overall economy. He gives the example of two friends that have their view on the stock market. One thinks it's going to go up. The other thinks it's going to fall significantly. And so they each wager a million dollars. One, that the stock would go up. The other, that the stocks would fall. And so in their minds, their story is they were a million dollars richer, or at least a certain percent richer, and it influenced how they spent. Or if your house went up in value, had house prices rises, people feel wealthier. They tell themselves a story about their wealth, their perception of their lifetime income. And when that story changes, that can cause swings, he says, in perceptions of spending power that could actually impact current spending. People pull back. That's what happened during the Great Recession. People pull back because they, their perception of their lifetime earning power or the wealth is diminished, and so they're not willing to spend as much, and that can lead to a recession. Another key insight from his book that I liked is he says, money has a special role. Oh, here's the quote. Provided that there is sufficient trust that its value, the value of money, will be maintained from one period to the next, it offers a means by which one can park generalized purchasing power to be used in the future when unimaginable events occur. Money gives us the ability to exchange labor today for generalized purchasing, purchasing power in the future. It's really kind of an interesting way to think about money. And I've done episodes way back on money as a time machine. You know, debt, you accelerate purchasing power into the present. But savings, you put it out into the future. But it, because it's so general, because it's money, assuming it maintains to some extent its purchasing power, invested in at least, let's say, short-term bonds, it, it's a kind of a hedge because we don't know what, even what products are going to be available or what we're going to need in the future. And, and that's kind of a special role for money. And I, I found that an interesting insight from Mervyn King's book. The other thing he points out is that central banks, and here's his quote, central banks arguably arguably the most important such institutions need a coping strategy too. We're all coping with radical uncertainty. Investors, businesses, households, and central banks, and that's kind of a key takeaway from this book, is that one of the most powerful central bankers in the world, Mervyn King, he's just coping, trying to figure out what to do. And that's why we don't want to put excessive faith in central banks. They're just coping too. We cope with heuristics, rules of thumb. We cope with filters so we don't get overwhelmed with information coming our way. And we cope by having reasonable narratives in terms of the stories that we're telling to justify our financial decisions. That's episode 236. 
You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. Each Wednesday, I send a, a free email with that week's links, as well as an essay that covers perhaps that week's topic or another topic. Writing, some of my best writing each week, only goes to members on that email list. I don't publish that out on the web anywhere. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not, I haven't provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>